podcast where I learn about something, well, that I want to learn about, Mm -hmm. and then hopefully you do too. Learn about it, that is? Want to learn about it. Oh, got it. it. Okay, got it. Yes, of course. (laughs) I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. Um, So today we have a really, really interesting topic, um, which I suppose goes without saying, otherwise I probably shouldn't do a podcast about it, but... I have found it even more interesting than some other topics we've done because I knew so little about it, which is, well, not nothing, but I knew so little about it. Um, I do want to point out that it kind of like is tied up in a ton of other really complex topics uh, throughout history. Okay. Uh, And so like usual, I'm not going to have time to go into all of that in depth. And I encourage you, if you hear something you don't know about, to look it up on your own because, yeah, there's a ton. Like, for instance, we're going to touch on, you know, historic famines in the Soviet Union and China, which, of course, are much more complex in their uh, causes than I'm going to be able to really intimate to you over this this episode. Sure. Um, So I maybe make it sound... A little too simple, and it's not. Right. (laughs) Um, You know, it's only an hour long ish. Ish, yeah. (laughs) After all, (laughs) and I mean, as much as I've been slowly increasing the time, (laughs) the time that these podcasts take, I don't want to, you know, slowly increase this one to two hours. Say, of course, and that wouldn't even be enough to. So, so there's no part two, is what you're saying? Nope. Wow. No part two. Okay. Just one part. All right. Well. How about you teach me something? Excellent. On to the man of the hour then. The star of our show, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trofim Lysenko. Yes. You may have heard of this guy. Uh, you may not have. I certainly had not heard of him before I started. Well, before I put him on my list of possible topics, let's say. Sure. Um. But as you're going to see, he had, I would say, a disproportionately huge impact on history. Okay. Um, and you might be surprised by the end that you haven't heard of him. I might be. Yeah. We'll find out. So, Trofim Denisovich Lysenko. He's born 29th September 1898 into a peasant family of Ukrainian ethnicity. So, he was born in Karlivka. In the Poltava Governorate. I can't hmm. say words. I don't know how you pronounce that. Governorate. Um, of the Russian Empire. Okay. Present day, that's in the Poltava Oblast, Ukraine. Okay. Okay. He was the oldest of four children, so he grew up helping a lot around the family farm, which led him to have an interest in farming. This makes sense. Um, but he was illiterate until age 13. And... Then the Russian Revolution came along, and he took advantage of that fact that peasants were then able to attain uh, higher status than they were before. And he won admission to several different schools, agricultural schools. Uh, So he attended the Uman School of Horticulture in 1921. And then in 1925, he studied agronomy at the Kiev Agricultural Institute. 
Um, at school, he began experimenting with new methods of growing peas during the winter. As you know, it, it's a long, harsh it is. winter. Tough to grow um, peas. <laughs> yes. I mean, yes. Correct. Mm-hmm. So, again, as, as you can imagine, severe cold and a lack of winter snow even was an issue when trying to grow things like wheat, which is another thing he was experimenting with. Um, so he was trying to treat wheat seeds with moisture and cold to induce them to bear crops when planted in the spring so that they weren't destroyed by, by the winter was kind okay. of where he started out. And uh, he had a difficult time trying to grow different crops through the winters. Again, not sure. surprisingly. Um, he ran what we now know were very poorly designed experiments. It's thought he probably faked some of his results. Ooh. Yeah, um, it's no good. However, when he announced his success, then he got all sorts of praise in the Soviet newspaper Pravda. So he claimed to have discovered a method to fertilize fields without fertilizer or minerals or anything like that. He claimed he showed winter crops of peas could be grown in Azerbaijan. And the paper says, quote, turning the barren fields of the Transcaucasus green in winter so that cattle will not perish from forefeeding and the peasant Turk will live through the winter without trembling for tomorrow. That's a lot of Government propaganda had, yeah. had a way with words, I found. Yeah. They really heaped on like poetic praise, you know? Of course. Yeah. Um, so what Lysenko had discovered, I'm putting that in air quotations, okay? Okay. Was actually a well-known process in which extreme cold induces seeds to flower. Sure. Russian okay. Russian peasants and other farmers all over the world had been doing this for centuries. Um, in fact, scientific experiments had already been done in this arena by the famous Russian botanist and a peer to Lysenko, Nikolai Vavilov. We'll talk about him later in the podcast, which is why I'm bringing him up now. Oh, like foreshadowing. He gets a name. Okay. Everyone else is just scientist. I see. He gets a name. Yeah. Um, Vavilov was the one that initially started to support Lysenko and encourage him in his work. Um, but anyways, Lysenko claimed to have invented this idea or reinvented it, whatever he claimed. So he coined the term gerovization to describe this chilling process. Um, which he used to make the seeds of the winter cereals behave like spring cereals. And I specifically mentioned that because that's where he got the word from. Spring cereals are called Jerovo in Russian, from an old adjective meaning spring. Okay. Yeah. Um, then Lysenko translated Jerovization as vernalization. From vernum, from La Latin vernum meaning spring. So that, that was the word he used for the international Got it. Community. You're yeah. looking at me like I was supposed to understand that vernum was a word for spring from Latin. It went right over my head. So I feel like vernal is a word I've heard before, but that doesn't mean I should have expected you to know it. I yeah. apologize. That's I'm sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, I know. I was I was like, oh, you'll get this. Nope. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Not a clue. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible for the prospect of your life that you didn't know that word. Oh, I know. I would not make a good farmer, apparently. Um so a big problem is that all of these claims, all of Lysenko's claims for the increased yields and winterizing the cereals, whatever, it was based on a few hectares of experiment that he's done. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but where Lysenko truly doomed Russia, and we will get into 
I know that sounds the pretty doom. like, you know, maybe a hyperbole, but it, it's not, uh, was in claiming that the results of his work, like making flowering vegetables in the winter, would be remembered by the plant and then passed on to the plant's offspring. Oh, like, uh, is it Lamarckian evolution? Or, uh, I can't remember the term for that. We certainly will talk about that in a minute. Okay, great. Correct. Um, so another area Lysenko was interested in was the effect of heat on plant growth. You know, cold heat. Cold heat, yeah. Yeah. So he believed, for no reason at all, that every plant needs an exact amount, like a certain amount of heat throughout its lifetime. Just... As if, like, almost analogous to, you know, a person has a certain amount of energy to use in their entire lifetime. And, you know, they should, like, conserve it or something. I think that's what he thinks. Anyways, so he was doing experiments attempting to correlate, like, the time and amount of heat required by each particular plant to go through its phases of development. Okay. Um, And so to get his data, he looked at the amount of growth, how many days went by, and the temperature on those days. He didn't measure, like, heat. No. Not and, heat absorption uh, or anything. Yeah. So in trying to determine the effects, then he was making mistakes in the statistical analysis of his data. So he was confronted by another scientist scientist named Maximov, who was an expert on thermal plant development. So this is another scientist that gets a name. Yeah, but for no reason. Okay. I Got just it. His name is Maximov. I don't know. I don't fun. bring him up later. All right. We'll, we'll hear about him <laughs> just this once. Um, the only reason I bring it up is because I think it was amusing that Lysenko then said to him and claimed boldly that mathematics has no place in biology. Oh, that is bold. It's bold. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so here is where I say the thing that you said earlier, like we tend to do in this podcast. Um, before we go any further, I think it's necessary or maybe I think it's just cool Mm-hmm. to uh, pause and get a picture of the state of early genetic sciences. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, as you may know, you clearly do know, Everett, Darwin was, uh, you know, though very famous for evolutionary thinking, wasn't the first to think of evolution. No. He didn't come up with it. Um, in 1801, a French natu- naturalist, oh, with a very long name, he's named Jean-Baptiste Pierre-Antoine de Monet Chevalier de Lamarck. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, I just learned he was named Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, but okay. That's, yeah, that's, that's probably not good enough name. to identify who he is. Sure. <laughs> he proposed a full-blown blown theory of evolution. You see, he was noticing that a lot of animals he studied were similar. And also that the expanding fossil record had a lot of similarities. And he was thinking, all right, life is not static. Things change over time. Good observation. When environments change, then organisms have to change to survive. Also good observation. Um, So where he went wrong is the mechanism. Right. So you have to pick a mechanism which drives evolution. And where Darwin got it, and other scientists (laughs) got it right, he didn't so much. No. Um, But... Darwin didn't get it all the way right either. We'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. So what he picked as the mechanism was inheritance of acquired characteristics. So the common example you'll find in like every textbook is a giraffe. Yeah. So if a giraffe stretches its neck for leaves, for instance, a type of nervous fluid would flow into its neck and allow it to grow longer with all that stretching. 
And then the offspring would inherit that longer neck. And then continued stretching would make it longer and longer over generations. Yeah. And meanwhile, organs that weren't used by the organism, the nervous fluid would leave those areas and those organs would shrink. Mm-hmm. That's what his theory was. Um, like you can see the, the the logic behind it and how that could be a mechanism that it's, it was worth investigating yes. before we knew any better. Of course, yeah. Like I think this guy requires some fool. credit. Yeah, no. exactly. Yeah, because I've definitely heard this theory of evolution a number of times, and like for the time period it's in, it, it like it makes sense. It's a good step forward, right? And for the time period it was in, it was appalling. Because how dare God not do it? Yes. So he was shunned, basically. But also, you might have heard of scientists called Cuvier. Mm-hmm. Anyways, he also thought there was a lack of deductive rigor in Lamarck's arguments. And he didn't think there was enough, you know, logical flow. Maybe just making too much stuff up out of nowhere. So it was rejected by both the religious community and some of the scientists that were like, hmm, yeah. nah. Um, so Lamarck died in 1829 in poverty and obscurity. Yeah. Maybe he'd be happy to know that every biology student learns about him. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yes, despite all he got wrong, he did have kind of a visionary evolutionary breakthrough. Yep. And, uh, then, uh, okay. So there's a lot of important thinkers in between, but we don't have time for that. Fine. So then comes Darwin. Okay. And Wallace, but... Yeah. At the same time as Darwin, by the way. Darwin gets all the credit, but... I know. Anyways. Darwin proposes evolution by the mechanism of natural selection. hmm Now, he got that correct. Yeah. Good job, Darwin. So natural selection, as proposed by Darwin, and as we know it today, relies on three main principles. I'm not going to tell you all of them. The important one is that the different traits an organism has is heritable. That is, they can be passed from generation to generation. That's one of the three main tenets of natural evolution by natural selection. Um, The frustrating thing for Darwin um, is that he didn't know how that worked exactly, just that it must happen. Yeah. Traits must be heritable. They must be passed on or else this whole thing falls apart. Exactly. Yeah. So in On the Origin of Species, Charles Darwin accepted the principle of inheritance of acquired characteristics as one of the factors contributing to evolution. So he didn't really think Lamarck was wrong. In that way, yeah. And uh, in his work, Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication, Darwin elaborates on this and proposed what he called a provisional hypothesis to explain the the transmission from one generation to another, which he called pangenesis. That was his theory. So he imagined that each part of the body created invisible particles he called gemules. Mm, yes, okay. Which passed into the bloodstream and then collected in the germ cells, like, you know, sperm and egg. Yeah. Um, all the gemules in the germ cells combined, which modified, of course, by the changes that had taken place, like, through right. the lifetime of the organism. Yeah. Um, you know, they combined in the germ cells and that they were constantly, the gemules were constantly being created and therefore constantly updating when that organism, you know, grew its neck longer, then when its neck was longer, it would send those updated gemules into the germ cells, right? Yeah. That's how the inheritance of acquired characteristics worked into Darwin's pangenesis. Right. So he thought Lamarck was right. He just didn't have the whole story. Yeah. Um, but which also means he kind of thought that the next generation is going to be an exact, like, 
photograph of where the parent organism was at the time they had that offspring because it was being constantly updated. Correct. Um, obviously that... <laughs> not accurate. That's not accurate. We mm-hmm. know, of course, that ova are formed in a female person in the womb and, well, sperm are being constantly made, but I wouldn't say they're a photograph of the, <laughs> no. of the man. But pangenesis was actually similar to ideas... Um, that Hippocrates and Democritus and other, like, ancient scientists proposed. Oh, I know that. Um, oh, yes. That the whole of a parental organism participated in heredity. That's why the prefix pan is there. The whole that organism. That makes sense. Um, Darwin actually wrote, Hippocrates' pangenesis was, quote, almost identical with mine, merely a change of terms and an application of them to classes of facts necessarily unknown to the old philosopher. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Basically just a little overhaul. Yes. So... The accumulation of gemmules was thought to occur by what Darwin called a mutual affinity. Each gemmule was said to be specifically related to a certain body part that it came from. Okay. They didn't contain information about the whole organism. And when they passed on to an offspring, you know, via reproduction, then the gemmules are thought to be responsible for developing into that part of the organism. So you get like an arm gemmule. Yeah. Um, but he didn't understand how... The input from both parents were to mix together in the offspring. That was an issue. Like, right. how do two arm gemmules make one arm in the offspring? How does that mix? Like, like how does that work? Does it just average between the two of them? Do they have some other mechanism? Yeah. Yeah. So, throughout the 19th century, heredity remained a puzzle. Um, how was it that children ended up looking similar to, but not exactly like their parents? Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, Charles Darwin couldn't explain that with pangenesis, and it made him very frustrated. Until we run into a monk, right? You say until, but did you know that it was actually as Darwin was publishing Origin of Species that Mendel was doing his work? Yes, I meant in terms of this story. (laughs) Yes, I'm going to say that part next, if that's what you're asking. (laughs) It is, yes. (laughs) Um, So, yes, in a monastery in the Czech Republic, or, you know, what is now the Czech Republic. It wasn't that then, obviously. Um, A monk named Gregor Mendel was studying heredity in his pea garden. Yep. And Mendel, like Lysenko, was the son of a farmer and had always been interested in plants. But that's where the similarities end, because unlike Lysenko, Mendel didn't hate math and statistics. He actually was trained in math and statistics at the University of Vienna. He learned how to properly design experiments and analyze his data. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the 1850s, he decided to run an experiment to better understand what kept species distinct and what made it possible for hybrids to form. So he bred thousands of pea plants and recorded how the traits were passed from one generation to the next. Yeah, it's actually fascinating. Keep it is going. awesome. So Mendel selects 22 different varieties of peas and breeds them, and he kept track of seven traits. I'm not going to list them all, but things like color, texture, like wrinkled or smooth, that kind of thing. Yep. Um, so Mendel found that when he hybridized a smooth and a wrinkled pea, he made peas that were all smooth. But if he then breeds this new generation together, you're going to get a quarter wrinkled and yep. three quarters smooth. Yeah. Three to one. This is where the fact that he had so much mathematical and uh, like experiment-based backing came into, like, Right, because Darwin actually had written in his works that he'd noticed a three-to-one ratio in the colors of snapdragons, but he didn't realize why that was important. Right. Right? Yeah. 
So he mentioned it, but he didn't even know why he was mentioning it. He just was mentioning all his observations, right? Yep. So um, Mendel proposed that peas weren't blending their wrinkled and smooth traits together. Each pea inherits both traits, but only the smooth trait is visible. And in the next generation, the traits are handed down again, but a quarter of the new peas get two wrinkled traits, which makes them that visible now. Yeah. So he had, that's what he proposed. So he had discovered dominant and recessive alleles, even if he didn't name it that then. Yeah, he didn't, but that was very cool. Yes. Unfortunately, his work goes completely unrecognized. Um, part of the problem was that botanists of his time weren't accustomed to statistics being used in natural science, and they didn't really know how yeah. to... Yeah, math, pish, pish posh. Interpret that. Yeah. Um, and they didn't... Yeah, they just didn't notice how important it was. Another problem is that... Um, he didn't necessarily get 100% of the results he thought he would. To be clear, he worked in over 20 plants and only one plant didn't behave in the way he predicted. Sure. It was called hawkweed. And that's not because he was wrong, but because genetics are much more complicated than he yeah. realized. And hawkweed is one of the plants that has crazy genetics. Very yeah. peculiar, crazy genetics. Right. Um, so... No, you know, so no one knows about this work for a long time, right? Um, he abandoned his experiments in the 60s and 1860s, 1860s to yeah. be clear, and focused on running his monastery. And he dies in 1884. And at the time, he was only remembered as a monk who was good at gardening. Yeah. It was 15 years after his death where scientists kind of rediscovered his work and realized how important it was and what he had, what he had realized. So why am I telling you all of this? Yes, why are you telling me all this? Um, because it's cool. True. And I like it. Okay. Any other reasons? I do think so. I believe so. Okay. Again, I don't know if it's completely necessary to my story, but I think it does add some context. Sure. Because I'm going to tell you about Lysenko's personal scientific... Um, Belief? Let's say pseudo-scientific ideas next. Okay, let's do that. He was a strong proponent of Lamarckism. Okay. As you deduced earlier. I did. Inferred? I don't, sometimes I don't remember which one to use. Figured out? <laughs> so he completely rejected Mendelian genetics. Uh, he thought Mendel's theory was reactionary and idealist. And um, as you'll see, this has a lot to do with communism. Okay. That wasn't what You're I was expecting you to say, but that's where fine. Where I'm going, are you? Yeah. I, th I believe we're about to take a, a political turn here, maybe? Well, this is why this topic is so interesting, I think. Okay. So, Lysenko's ideas were a mixture of his own and those of a Russian agronomist named Ivan Mishurin and some other scientists. Again, unnamed scientists. Sure. Uh, through this mixture of ideas... Lysenko founds the Mishurinist school of thought. Later, it's called Lysenkoism. Okay. Yeah. So the core ideas were that body cells determine the quality of an organism's offspring. Bo body cells determine the quality. As opposed to our sex cells that we know actually okay. is what reproduces. Anyways, every part of the body contributes to the germ cells. Yep. Similar to Darwin's pangenesis, although yeah. Lysenko denies there was a connection there at all. Okay, fine. He also claims that his ideas were not associated with Lamarckism, but there are similarities, like the belief in inheritance of acquired characteristics. Yeah, okay. He just, as you'll see later, 
doesn't want any Western science to have any, and apparently the Czech Republic is somehow Western. Anyways. Okay. No one else. Soviet science is special and unique. Right. Discovered all on its own. And that's probably a a main pillar of what they were trying to achieve, right? They just wanted their own stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, So Lysenko did not believe in genes. The only time he spoke of them was to say that they didn't exist. And that he'd only wear khakis. <laughs> no. Oh, God. Anyways, keep going. He instead believed that anybody, as is what he wrote, anybody once alive obtains heredity. Meaning that the entirety of the body was able to pass on the hereditary information of that organism. And it wasn't dependent on a special elements like DNA or genes or anything like that. Okay. So he shaped his genetic concepts to support the simple purpose of just breeding and improving crops. Um, he also shaped them, like, deliberately to disprove other claims made by peer geneticists or past geneticists. Okay. So he went at science the opposite way. Right. Kind of like a creationist. He went with his beliefs and then tried to make it into science. Right. So uh, effectively fabricating results that would align with his beliefs. Yes. So some of ideas were what we call vitalistic. So vitalism is a belief that starts from the premise. Um, I'm just going to define it because... That's fine. I don't really know how to reword this. So living organisms are fundamentally different from non-living entities because they contain some non-physical element or are governed by different principles than inanimate things. That's what vitalism is. And that's part of Lysenkoism. As in they have some sort of essence like a soul or... Maybe. You said non-physical essence. Like... Yeah. Some, like, some sort of life force that's yes. not material. Yes, and that connects all life and rocks don't have it. Okay. Okay. Um, it's, a, it's a very old, vitalism is very old, dates back to at least ancient Egypt. Sure, I could see that, yeah. Right. So um, <laughs> here's some other interesting things he thought. So Lysenko claimed that plants are self-sacrificing. They don't die due to a lack of sunlight or moisture. They die so that healthy plants can live. Okay. He claimed when they die, they deposit themselves over the growing roots of healthy plants to help the new generation survive. Okay. This so, sounds like there could also be a political bend just to that statement. Communism? Collectivism? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So because of this belief, Lysenko forced farmers to plant seeds very close together. I'll talk about this again later. Um So he called it law of the life of species. He said that because of the law of the life of species, plants from the same class never compete with one another. Oh. So he forbade all use of fertilizers, all use of pesticides, um, especially risky were his, well, I was going to say recommendations, but orders to, to use treatments like scraping the seeds of sandpaper or treating them with acid. Um, I could never figure, I didn't see a defense of this. But what it ended up doing was weakening the plant. Sure. Blights and fungal infections, which made any plants that actually did survive that insufficient for food and dangerous to eat. Hmm. Yeah, that's not good. So if you're confused by any of this, like I was, um, well, don't worry, you should be. It makes no sense. It's full of holes in logic and it has no supporting evidence. Not necessarily. I mean, yes. If I were to try to think of a logical reason for that, he might be thinking, hey, if... Uh, If we change or alter this plant by doing that to the seeds, 
that they're going to pass on those traits. And then he's making some sort of but assumption what that traits? what he, what is sandpapering and, and aciding a plant? What is that? What makes what? it strong against the elements? <laughs> That's the part I couldn't figure out his law, like what logical reason he had to do these things in the first place uh, what, and why he didn't just actually conduct a study in which he did this and see the results. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking it comes from the perspective of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. But well. plant style. Baby plant style. All right. What other pseudoscientific notions are part of Lysenkoism? Let's find out. This is going to be fun. Okay. So part of his problem and part of the reason he grew so popular with the Soviet leaders is that he really mixed his science with politics. Yeah. Okay. So he wanted his science to fit into Marxist ideologies. Sure. Lysenko claimed, like we talked about, he didn't like genes before. I'm going to explain why. Part of Lysenkoism is that the concept of a gene, according to him, is a bourgeois invention. <laughs> because he does not, he, he didn't want anything, he called them an immortal substance of heredity or clearly defined species. All of these things belong to metaphysics, not that the materialistic Marxist science. Um, so he proposed Marxist genetics, which included the unlimited ability of transformation of living organisms by environmental change only. Okay. So this meshes well with the Marxian principles like everything changes. So like as in you could completely alter an organism and further generations by completely altering the environment in which it's brought up. Right. Which fits with the whole Marxian thing of new Soviet man can be created and yeah. he has unlimited ability to transfer to transform nature for his benefit. Right. Um, he refused the idea that random mutations might happen because science is the enemy of randomness. Um, mm -hmm. individual random mutations being able to influence subsequent generations was completely at odds with the Marxist idea of immutable laws of history. Yeah. Um, so it's, this, this is hard. Okay. So remember when I said he didn't believe in genes? Yes. Yeah. So that's a perfect example of the Marxism in science. Genes are evil. He thought they were evil because that would mean someone might be better than someone else by birth alone. Not like that's not what actually what it means, but that's what he is taking from it. That, that, that could be extrapolated from that idea. A peasant should be a peasant because of how they were born. Right. Whereas the whole Marxism was that everyone should have equal opportunity. And if we're born with these things that say exactly who you are. Yeah. How, how, could that be yeah. that you could you're, change You're now it? fated. You should be capable of anything. Yeah. So it's like a nice idea. Do you understand? Like, yeah. the Marxist idea of equality, it was what he was trying to go for. But he just projected that real hard yeah. um, onto science. Like, he was nature over nurture all the way. Otherwise, you know, true meritocracy couldn't really exist. Which is what the Marxist theory was supposed to be going for, but which did not happen in the Soviet Union, as you all know. Wouldn't he be People nurture over her. nature? Um, sorry, that's what I meant. You're okay. right. Nurture over nature. Yeah. I mixed up. I mixed it up. Totally on board now. Thanks, okay, got thanks it. Thanks for catching that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so another of Lysenko's theories was that obtaining more milk from cows did not depend on their genetics. Of course, he hated genetics. Sure. Um, but on how they were treated. Which is kind of nice. Okay, so, so you change their environment and they adapt. The better that they were handled and taken care of, the more milk they would give you. Okay. Which is just nice because him and his followers were very well known for taking good care of their livestock. Great. That part's okay. nice. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, 
This has nothing to do with anything I've said. I just wanted to mention it because I think it's funny. He also claimed that the cuckoo was born when young birds like warblers were fed hairy caterpillars by their parent bird. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And he used... Because cuckoos just appear in the nest, you know what I mean? Because the cuckoo goes to other nests and pushes their eggs out and lays its own egg. Yeah. And is like five times bigger than the parent, but they don't notice that. Whatever. So he just was like that. I don't know. It has nothing to do with anything else I've mentioned. I just thought that was funny. So I wanted to throw that in sure. there. Got it. It's just another one of his claims that have not, no basis in science. And he just tested anything. He would have known that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So back on to fertilization. To add on to the claims that fertilization could greatly increase crop yield, he also claimed he could transform one species of wheat into another species. Like alchemy. Like, well, (laughs) sure. Sure, because you're right. One of those plants is like haploid and one of them is like diploid. Anyways, they have completely different genetics. But he wouldn't know that because he hates genes. Um. So he thought by two to four years of autumn planting, he could transform a spring wheat, durum wheat, into common wheat, an autumn wheat, hmm. by just planting it in the autumn. I'll teach you to grow in autumn. Right. So you'll be a different species. I'm going to affect your... Because your... he didn't think species were a distinct thing because they could change, right? Yeah. Everything could change. Yeah. So change your environment. Again, it's a nice idea because it's based on this principle that no one is inherently better. Nothing's inherently what it is. You can do what you want, reach for the stars, but it's... Yeah, unlimited potential. It's 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 wrong. Um, so, by all accounts, Lysenko was a very poor scientist. He did science poorly. Let's just... That's not up for debate. Yeah, in terms of what we would consider for scientific method or someone... Exactly. He's yeah. a bad scientist. Yeah. And he was thought of poorly in the scientific community. Uh, he seems like a decent philosopher. Especially internationally. Right. Maybe he should have stuck with that. But um, even among his peers in the USSR, he was known to be a bad scientist. They knew he was bad. Okay. Um, so how did he rise to such an honored position? Which I haven't even told you about all the positions he has risen to. But you must have assumed yeah, if, if he had a lot of power. If he's telling farmers what to do. Yes. There, he has to be in a position of I'll, power. I'll tell you it. about that in a second. But okay. I think I need to set up... a. Uh, like I said, very brief historical context about the USSR Great. Um, at this point. Um, so, Russia, pretty tough go of things in the late 1800s, yeah. early 1900s. There were wars. Yeah. Uh, the Russo- Russo-Japanese War for yeah. one. World War One for another one. Yeah. Um, as you know, they had heavy losses in World War One. Um, oh, boy, did they They were they very ever. important to the war, but very heavy losses. There were revolutions. Yeah. There were civil wars all through Russia's empire. A lot of the peoples wanted their independence. It was just, um, it was tough. And then the revolutionary leader, Vladimir Lenin, goes and dies. He does do that. And one Joseph Stalin takes over as the de facto dictator. Yeah. We'll call him. They might not have called him that. We call him that. Yeah. We do. Yeah. So the Soviet Union is going to introduce, uh, is trying to modernize their agriculture and so and and also adopt marxist ideals so they're going to introduce the collectivization of their agricultural sector between 1928 and 1940 during stalin's you know ascension um so collectivization was part of their first five-year plan um and and what collectivization was is a policy that forced like like confiscated the agricultural lands of the peasant farmers 
and made them because they didn't want individual landholders. No. Private property owners. That was bad. Okay. And they wanted to make collectives and state controlled farms and move all the labor onto those. Sure. So the Soviet leadership, you know, confidently expected that this is going to immediately increase food supply for the urban population because we need to urbanize and we need to feed them somehow. Of course. Yeah. People like to eat. Right. Um, so they thought that this would give them more raw materials for their processing industries. Um, they're going to impose state like quotas on the collective farms. You need to give us this much, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they regarded collectivization as the solution to the crisis of agricultural distribution that they were having. Um, but in fact, it did the opposite. It mm-hmm. heavily damaged the country's overall food production. Um, and, and some of that is just because people were mad. Okay. Like maybe sure. it would have worked if everyone was on board. So maybe even given time or something, but. Right. But, uh, so many peasant farmers that had their lands taken away didn't just nicely go work on uh, someone else's farm. But, but- yeah, I get it. They abandoned farming altogether. They worked poorly on purpose. They stole things. Yeah. So by the early 1930s, over 91% of agricultural land was collectivized. Um, and people didn't know it or didn't own them anymore, personally. And that was a big change. So already in the 1920s, though, in the late 1920s, it was clear that this wasn't working. I could see that. Yeah, sure. Doesn't take a lot of years of low crop yield to. There was widespread crop failure and then famines. Yeah. And so here comes Trofim Lysenko promising to boost crop yields nationwide. He's gonna convert the empty Russian interior into farms, you know, by training plants to grow better. He was gonna, according to him, he's gonna grow orange groves in Siberia. That's impressive. <laughs> okay. So. Those claims were exactly what the Soviet leaders wanted to hear. Stalin Stalin refused to change what he wanted to do. He wasn't going to change course on his five-year plan and collectivization. And so he orders Lysenko to fix it based on all his farming ideas. Yeah. Um, So you see Stalin, what you need to know is Stalin and other communist leaders, communist party, basically glorified peasants. They wanted peasants in positions of power. They liked the idea of that, you know, yeah, anyone you... can reach anything. And they deliberately picked people that had been born peasants and rose up and made something of themselves. You know, it's the whole men aren't born, they're made type of thing. They wanted those self-made men in power. Yeah. So Lysenko, who was nicknamed the barefoot scientist, fit what they were looking for to a T. Yeah. Um, as I've mentioned, his attacks on the bourgeois pseudoscience of modern genetics. Yeah. Ooh. Makes for a good story. And the proposal that plants could be, you know, taught to adjust to the environment um, suited the ideology of Soviet society. So state published or state media published uh, articles that said things like Siberia is transformed into a land of orchards and gardens. Soviet people change nature. Uh, Anyone that was opposing Lysenko was called a defender of mysticism, obscurantism, and backwardness. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that, sure. 
So in the late, or just in the 1930s, the state, um, so Stalin, tightened its grip on science. Like, you had to believe what the state believed. Yep. Uh, so demonstrating loyalty to communist ideology became mandatory for scientists. Uh, requirements were imposed to kind of replace that old intellectual guard uh, with new specialists that were from, like I said, the peasant working class families. And Lysenko just kind of got launched up, up, up. His career took off. Um, again, even though he denied statistics and didn't follow any methodologies and was a bad scientist. Yeah. Um, so he had to cover up his failures because obviously this doesn't work. So basically just kind of lie about the yields and the achievements he was making. Seems like a logical next step. And had to keep making new promises of better and better yields and that kind of thing. Um, in 1940, he was made director of the Institute of Genetics within the USSR's Academy of Sciences. But he doesn't believe in genetics. I know. Okay. No, he's gonna call. He called them Marxian genetics. Got it. I don't that know. works. He, he there's probably a different word in Russian. I don't know. Um, so he uses political influence to you know start suppressing dissenting opinions, marginalizing his critics. Uh, it got worse from there. I'll mm-hmm. talk about that in a second, though. But Genetics and evolutionary biology was still taught at secondary schools and higher education institutions. There was other research that was allowed to continue. Biologists did continue to criticize him and his ideas until 1948. Okay. So the August 1948 session of, it's called VASKNIL, V-A-S-K, little h, N-I-L. So that's the name in Russian. That is an an abbreviation in Russian for what we would know as the Lenin All-Union Academy of Agricultural Sciences. So there's like, you know, a big... um, Is this like a get-together or like a forum? Yeah, like a... a, What do you call it? Like a... Conference? Yeah. Basically. A big assembly. Sure. um, That met every once in a while and was like, this is what we all believe now. Okay. So it was really what marked the separation between Soviet biology and everyone else's biology. Okay. Um, it was held in Moscow from July 31st to August 7th, and it was organized by the Academy's president, Trofim Lysenko, directly approved by Joseph Stalin. Sure. State authorities at this point were directly interfering with scientific arguments of biologists and prohibiting research in genetics. Um, so that was in sharp contrast to what had just happened in, um, where did it happen? Stockholm. The 8th International Congress of Genetics took place just before this, the 7th to the 14th of July, in Stockholm. Mm-hmm. Um, and in his presidential address, the, the president of that Congress, Hermann Mueller, mentioned specifically fighting against Lysenkoism was one of the main tasks for the global scientific community. Yeah, I could see that. And again, he was not mistaken because at that Vasknil session a month later, genetics was proclaimed an idealistic pseudobiology and anti-national science of no importance to agricultural. Hmm. A little inaccurate. So Lysenko's ideas were made universal law at the next party conference in a speech edited by Stalin himself. Wow. Wow. But then Lysenko was given to making... um, Let's call them weird assertions like wheat could be taught to be rye, 
or that inorganic substances could be combined to create life. Hmm. Okay. Going and almost back to, like, there was, a, I think it was a medieval idea that mice actually came from grain piles. Oh, you're talking about spontaneous generation. Yeah. That's on my list, too, because I've always liked that guy that's quoted as saying, when he rings his dirty underclothes into a vat of grain, then mice appear. Yeah. As if, you know, from out of nowhere. And I'm just thinking, how dirty do your underwear have to be to be able to wring them out and liquid drips it? Oh, okay, let's... One day I'll talk about that. Okay. <laughs> so, now we're going to talk about what happened to everyone that didn't agree. Ooh, let's do that. So, even earlier than this fast nil sessions, this had been happening. There was a great purge in the late 1930s. They called it the Great Purge. <laughs> Um, some, now, some scientists were just shot and killed, basically. Oh, we're talking more than just relieved for their position. But that happened too. Because the next sentence I was going to say was, the lucky ones simply got dismissed from their posts and were left destitute. Good. You should just stop writing notes and just let me prompt you. <laughs> I should. That would be much quicker. Yeah. Um, hundreds or maybe they think thousands of others were put in prison or psychiatric hospitals. Because you must be crazy to believe this. Yeah, sure. Um, Nikolai Vavilov, for instance. Mm, I remember that name. So he was arrested in 1940. And I don't know. The source I got it from said, ironically, dies of starvation in prison mm. in 1943. But, but he's a scientist that you mentioned early on that was his supporter. He supported him in his initial science. You should research this. Okay. But he was a great botanist. He went to 50 different countries, collected different plants. He thought that diversifying crops and doing all these things was what was going to save Russia. And sure. everyone was like, no, stop your real research. Okay. He was good. Don't Let's not slander him. I, I didn't think I had, but that's fine. Keep going. <laughs> Sorry, I just read a lot about him that I couldn't include in this podcast, and he's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I don't know if it's ironic that he died of starvation since Lysenko was the one that caused all the famines, not him. Yeah. But okay. Um, but you know, because he enjoyed Stalin's support, his constant failures really did nothing to decrease his power in the Soviet Union. Lysenko just kept being in charge of things. Yeah, sure. Um, his portrait hung in scientific institutes all over the empire Every time he gave a speech, a brass band would play and a chorus would sing a song they wrote in his honor. Wow. You That's know. a lot of fanfare. Honor. So, though he did remain at his post in the Institute of Genetics until 1965, his influence, though, did decline after Stalin died in 1953. This makes sense. Um, in 1955, there was an attempt to disempower him. There was a letter signed by more than 300 scientists. It was called the Letter of 300. It was sent to Nikita Khrushchev, and Lysenko saw that, and he resigned. Hmm. Temporarily, because Khrushchev put him back in power. Okay. Um, but mainstream scientists basically just kind of kept chipping away, and, and there was like a new willingness for the government to kind of listen. They didn't immediately shut down these criticisms anymore. Um, so in 1962, three of the most prominent Soviet, phys Soviet physicists presented a case against him. Um, they announced he was a pseudoscientist. Yeah. Woo! Uh, they also denounced his application of political power to silence his opposition. And um, this is when some structural upheaval in the Soviet government was happening. So there was a lot of purging in the major institutions of, you know, the people that just uh, didn't deserve to be there. Sure. 
So this was a good time for this to happen. And in 1964, another physicist, I don't know why so many physicists are <laughs> in yeah, this fight, but Andrei Sakharov spoke out against him in the General Assembly of the Academy of Sciences of the USSR. And he said, quote, he is responsible for the shameful backwardness of Soviet biology and of genetics in particular, for the dissemination of pseudoscientific views, for adventurism, I don't know what that means, but for the degradation of learning and for the defamation, firing, arrest, and death of many genuine scientists. And then all of a sudden, the Soviet press is full of anti-Lysenko articles and an appeal to restore scientific method to biology and agricultural sciences. So in 1965, he was actually removed from his post. He was shunted off to an experimental farm in Moscow's Lenin Hills, um, which was the institute that he used to run, the Institute of Genetics, was soon dissolved. So they kind of started fresh completely. Sure, yeah. Um, after Khrushchev's dismissal in 64, the president of the Academy of Sciences declared to everyone that the immunity to criticism Lysenko had enjoyed was officially over. Let's criticize him publicly. Okay. And... Uh, an experiment or expert commission, sorry, was sent to investigate the records Lysenko was keeping in his experimental farm. His methods and ideas were revealed. Uh, a devastating critique of him was then made public with all this, you know. And uh, yeah, so he was disgraced. He died in obscurity in Moscow in 1976. But we didn't really specifically talk about what happened. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. So we're going to do that now. Let's do it. Because his ideas and practices did contribute to the famines that killed millions upon millions of people. Um, and I told you in the introduction I was going to talk about famines. So you did. So here is what we're doing now. Uh, it's, it's impossible, obviously, to say for sure. But I found several sources that argue that Trofim Lysenko probably killed more human beings than any other individual scientist in history. Scientist or just person? Scientist. Okay. Deadliest scientist. Yeah. I don't know. What other person killed millions of people by themselves? Stalin. Mao. Sure. That, that scientist. That's why it's a scientist. Because okay. I'm not trying to say that Stalin and Ma, Mao Zedong are, are not responsible for the famines just as much, if not more, than Lysenko, obviously. Sure. Um, anyways, the argument was that, you know, he killed more than dynamite. Poison gases, atomic bombs even. Yeah. Guns and gunpowder probably do win, but that wasn't one scientist. So No, that has a lot of evolution over time. Exactly. Um, so, like, for example, everything that he touched went to... <laughs> didn't work out. Wheat, rye, potato, beets all died and rotted every time he tried to make, you know, farmers do his, his thing. Um, and like I said, Stalin still deserved the bulk of the blame for the famines. Um, his practices made everything worse by a lot. Sure. Um, so, for example, deaths from the Soviet famines peaked around 1932 to 1933. But so four years later, there was 163 times more farmland using Lysenko's methods and food production was lower than before. Yeah. Still, lower than the famine times. It's just there's less people now because they all died. Right. So there's less death happening. Mm -hmm. As nice as that sounds. So the Soviet Union's allies obviously suffered under Lysenkoism too. Communist China adopts his methods and we will talk about that. And again, Mao deserves the blame there as well. Yeah. 
Um, but Lysenko's idea is certainly doomed millions of people. So we're going to briefly touch first on the Soviet famines. Let's do that. So the Soviet famine of 1930 to 1933 was a famine in the major grain producing areas in the Soviet Union, which includes Ukraine. And we're going to talk more about Ukraine in a second. Um, also, the Northern Caucasus suffered, the Kuban region, the Volga region, Kazakhstan, the South Urals, West Siberia. Those were all heavily hit areas. Um, so they estimate it's it's so hard with these things, right? Yeah. Um, so it's a wide range. But the estimates are like 5.7 to 8.7 million people died in those other areas of the Soviet Union that aren't Ukraine. Because, again, we're going to talk about that one in a second. Um, and it, like, to, again, blame Stalin... To just throw him under the bus a little bit, because he deserves it. Um, during this period, the Soviet government was heavily persecuting kulaks. Yeah. So kulaks just means a peasant that dares to own anything privately. I mean, there was like a minimum. Like you had to own... The numbers are different in different places, I found, which is frustrating. But like, I don't know, eight acres, then you were a kulak. Four cows? How dare you? Okay. Hoard some wealth or something. I don't know. I, I'm also against hoarding of wealth, but that doesn't seem like the same, <laughs> the same thing. thing. Um, Joseph Stalin ordered kulaks to, quote, be liquidated as a class. Uh, so they, of course, were targeted by the state. The persecution had been ongoing since the Russian Civil War and just never really stopped. Yeah. Um, once the collectivization became widely implemented, then the persecution against kulaks increased because, right, they were trying to seize all the lands from, from kulaks. Yeah. Um, and, and so they just arrested, deported, executed them, put them in, you know, the gulags. We, we, that's the stuff I learned. This is the stuff I learned about in high school. Um, so some kulaks responded by then sabotaging, like killing the livestock, destroying crops. Salting the land and stuff like that. Yeah. So despite this mounting death toll, Stalin's going to continue the five-year plan and, and collectivization. Um, so yeah, this is, this is on Stalin. Yeah. But I said we get back to talking about Ukraine. So here we are. Um, from 1932 to 1933, the famine in Ukraine was particularly brutal. It was specifically known as the Holodomor. Am I saying that right? Holodomor? I'm going to guess yes. Or the Great Ukrainian Famine. So I found the etymology of this word interesting. So the Holodomor literally translates from Ukrainian to mean death by hunger. Or killing by hunger, killing by starvation, sometimes murder by hunger or starvation, because it's a compound of two Ukrainian words, holod for hunger and more for plague. So a hunger plague. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and again, it's a man-made famine is what we're saying here. Yeah. Important distinction. Yes. So Ukraine was and is one of the largest grain producing regions that we have at the time, largest grain yeah. producing state in the USSR. And was subject to unreasonably high grain quotas in comparison with the rest of the USSR. Much higher. Um, which caused Ukraine to be hit particularly hard by the famine. Like, think of the Irish famine like, when the, when the, when Britain was taking all of, yeah, all of their food to yes. feed their people. This is remarkably similar to that. Um, and like, the question is if it was, was this done on purpose to quell the Ukrainian independence movement? Or was this just uh, Stalin hating everyone equally? You know what I mean? Like, it was clearly malicious, but was it genocidal? Right. So the estimates of the death toll vary greatly. So a joint statement to the United Nations signed by 25 countries in 2000, 
three said seven to 10 million people died. But the current scholars estimate maybe 3.5 to 5 million dead. Okay. As if that's much better. But No, but that still rivals what about the total combined in all the other areas. Yeah. So about a quarter of those were children. Another 600,000 deaths occurred through lost birth, they said. Yeah. Um, so Kazakhstan as well. Ukraine and Kazakhstan has been a disagreement about if these can be classified as genocides or simply mass murders. You know, one or the other. Like, mm-hmm. what is the intention? Were you targeting ethnic Ukrainians and Kazakhs or not? Um, so because others say, no, this was a class war, not a ethnicity based thing. It's sure. a class war. They were just targeting Kulak. Like, yeah. Not that that's good, but it's different. Um, so since 2006, the Holodomor has been recognized by the European Parliament, by Ukraine, and by 25 other countries as a genocide against the Ukrainian people that was carried out by the Soviet government. Yeah, I could see that. I feel as if I don't have any sort of right to question that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that we should go with what the Ukrainian people feel was done to them. I'm going to, I'm going to back them on that one. Good idea. So turning to China, um, I'm going to give you slightly more historical context. I don't really have time to give you. (laughs) That's okay. We're doing it. Um, Suffice to say that due to Western imperialism and racism in the late 1800s and early 1900s, China was feeling abandoned and persecuted by the West. And so they were looking for new allies. Sure. And that is important to what ended up happening because that's why they began systematically copying everything the Soviets did, Mm -hmm. including their science. So the People's Republic of China had been established in 1949, and Mao Zedong um, initiated his Great Leap Forward, you know, an an effort to modernize and jumpstart every sector of China's economy. Right. So he mimicked the mistakes of collectivization and Lysenkoism almost exactly. Yeah, it was a pretty good, you know, copy-paste. Yeah, so the failure... That then happened was predictable. But the scale of destruction was much greater. The Great Chinese Famine occurred between, I don't know, 1959 and 1961, but some sources say 58 to 62, something like that. Okay. And it's widely regarded as the deadliest famine in human history. Um, Though the death toll is really hard to pin down. Again, it really depends if you're a supporter of the Communist Chinese Party or not, because some of those estimates are like... I don't know, maybe a million people died. And you're like, ha, no. Right. Okay. So the more realistic ranges, depending on what source you read, is anywhere from 15 to 55 million people died. That's a huge range. To... It's a huge range, but either is a huge number. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's tough. So the most impacted provinces were, I'm so sorry, I'm going to pronounce these terribly, but um, Anhui with 18% dead. Wow. Chongqing at 15% dead. Sichuan at 13% dead. Guizhou, 11%. And Hunan at 8%. Yeah. And those are big numbers. Those are big numbers. So um, there are obviously other contributing factors here. So the policies of the Great Leap Forward included collectivization. Yep. Um, that was bad. Another factor was the inefficient distribution of food. Like they had that, you know, centrally planned economy and they didn't distribute food well. Yeah. 
um, requiring the use of poor agricultural techniques. Hmm, whose techniques were those? Uh, the four pests. That was, uh, I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, the over-reporting of grain production and ordering millions of farmers to switch to iron and steel production instead of. But that was probably because of the over-reporting of grain production. Yeah, so, they thought that they had enough food, so they're like, okay, now produce another resource. I'm going to briefly touch on these things. Okay. So, during the 7,000 Cadres Conference in early 1962, the president of China formally attributed 30% of the famine to natural disasters. They did have some drought and some issues. Flooding. 70% to man-made errors. I don't know if he's correct, but let's talk about those man-made errors. Let's do that. So, Lysenko, uh, <laughs> uh, like ideas, close planting. Yeah. Where the density of seedlings was ordered to be at first tripled and then doubled again. <sighs> wow. Okay. So, remember, Lysenkoism said plants of the same species wouldn't compete with each other. Right. In reality, they did compete. A which lot. stunted growth and resulted in lower yields. Yeah. Um, another policy was known as deep plowing, and that was based on a colleague of Lysenko's, uh, Terenti Maltev. Anyways, he was part of the Lysenkoism movement. Um, he encouraged, well, his ideas, sorry, encouraged peasants to ignore normal plowing depth, so that's 15 to 20 centimeters, instead plow deeply into the soil, so 33 to 66 centimeters instead. Because, you know, theoretically, that's where the most fertile soil was deep into the earth. Um, so that would allow extra strong root growth. And um, apparently that can work in some contexts, but in general, it's bad and did not, it hindered the yield. It, it was it was bad for production in China at the time. Okay. So the four pests campaign, that called upon citizens to destroy mosquitoes, rats, flies, and sparrows. They specifically targeted sure. the European okay. sparrow. Um, and the mass eradication of the sparrow resulted in unchecked growth in the populations of crop-eating insects because the sparrow is their natural predator. Yeah, So there was that. That was a big, that was a problem. Um, Another error is what's now called the illusion of superabundance. So beginning in 1957, the Communist Party began to report excessive production of grain because of pressure from their superiors. They just didn't want to be seen as failing, so they just lied. Um, So the actual production was decreasing. So, for example, in Gansu, the grain yield declined by 4,273,000 tons from 1957 to 1961, even though they reported it had increased. Yeah. Yeah. So, I would like to end this on a, um, I don't think it's a nice note, but it's a A thing. note? It's a thing I'm going to say. Okay. So, there, Lysenko has enjoyed a, re- a renaissance in Russia recently. Oh, boy. Several books and papers praising him and his legacy have been published. Um, and it's bolstered by what has been... Uh, I didn't write this part. It, a quirky coalition of Russian right-wingers, Stalinists, a few qualified scientists, and even the Orthodox Church. So there's several reasons for this renewal. Um, for one, the hot new field of epigenetics has made Lysenko-like ideas fashionable. Yeah. So, most living things have thousands of genes. Yes? They do. Okay. Yeah. But not all those genes are active. Correct. At once. Some get turned on or off inside ourselves, um, or, you know, their volume, like their production turned up or down. The study of those changes in gene expression is called epigenetics. Correct. Yep. And it just so happens that environmental factors are what turn the genes on or off. Yes. So... In certain cases, these environmentally driven changes 
can be passed on to your offspring. Like Lysenko said. So was he right about something? N- no. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, I mean, first of all, he claimed genes didn't exist, okay? So, like, this is not what he was predicting with his science. Um, genes in epigenetics are the thing being turned on or off. So, so no. No. Yeah. This is not... He, it wasn't like, oh, he was so close, he just called the wrong name. No. No. While epigenetic changes can occasionally pass from parent to child, they don't usually. Let's yeah. be clear. And the changes always disappear after a few generations. They're never permanent. So that contradicts his whole thing, too. Right. Okay. There's also, I would say, something darker going on here besides epigenetics. There is a general mistrust of science itself surfacing. Oh, most certainly, yeah. So Lysenko's newest defenders uh, accuse the science of genetics of serving the interests of American imperialism and acting against the interests of Russia. Hmm. So the anti-American sentiment in Russia is kind of commingling with science. And reviving a bit of that very patriotic or politically driven science. Science is seen as a major component of Western culture. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the barefoot peasant, you know, he stood up to Western science. He's a Russian hero. I see. So just to kind of back that up, nostalgia for the Soviet era and the, you know, anti-Western uh, sentiments here. It's, it's common in Russia today. I couldn't find a more recent result because I don't think a lot of Russia's stuff is being shared with us right now. But in 2017, a poll found that 47% of Russians approved of Stalin's character and managerial skills. Hmm. That's interesting. And, you know, if you approve of Stalin, you also approve of Stalin's lackeys, you know, ride on his coattails a little bit, like Lysenko. Um, So on the one hand, this this is pretty shocking, right? That this would be now coming back into fashion. Um, but it, it's certainly a fringe movement. It's not a majority. Genetics isn't about to be banned in Russia again. Hopefully. We think. <laughs> but, you know, I read that in an article from before the war, so who knows? Um, but as we definitely saw over the course of the pandemic, fringe ideas can still have dangerous consequences. Yes, absolutely. So this is kind of A, distorting Russian history, and glossing over all of the abuse of power Lysenko did, um, you know, to say nothing of all the people that starved and the fact that some, quote, qualified scientists are part of this just shows, you know, how strong that anti-Western feeling must be. Um, Not to end on a depressing note, but I would be remiss here if I just kind of laid all that blame on Russia. For, of course. The, for the recent anti-science uh, sentiments we're seeing in the world. we've I just want to point out that we have certainly seen ideology, like both political and religious, influencing, disregarding, rejecting science in the Western world as oh, well. A- absolutely. It has, it has risen greatly here too. Let's not say Russia's the only one with this problem. No. That would be mean of me to say. And incorrect. We all have this problem right now. Oh, most certainly. Um, so yeah, that was a sunny note to end the podcast on. I'm sure you feel great about it. Yes, but, of course. <laughs> uh, we have an email address if you'd like to reach us for any sort of reason, including correcting me on anything I got wrong, topic suggestions, saying hello. Uh, it is teach me something for the, the number, the numeral for, not the word, 
at gmail.com. Um, I'm not going to say what the next episode is in case I can't secret get it together in time. Okay. Needless to say, the start of school season with kids is a little bit hectic. A little bit. Um, or a lot of it. <laughs> a lot of it, but we'll see in a few days. So thank you so much again for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Mm-hmm.